Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. I don't know what my buddy John Wilner's been doing today, but I've been uh, I've been on the phone with lawyers. I've been on the phone with officials at Oregon State and Washington State. And I'm trying to make sense of everything that's going on. And, oh, also talk about the big football games that are coming up this weekend. John Wilner can read them at Pac12Hotline.com, the Bay Area News Group superstar, and the famed co-host of Kanzano and Wilner, the podcast, joining us. How are you? How's your day been? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's been pretty busy the last few hours uh, with the legal proceedings, shall we say. Like Today was the deadline for the 10 schools to file motions to dismiss the lawsuit brought by Washington State and Oregon State, and sure enough, that's what they did. The motion to dismiss, I yeah, help me out. Let's just talk, you and I talking like, you know, we're having a conversation about this because... You know, I started asking attorneys on both sides, like, is this a formality that this would happen? And they kind of agreed that, yes, regardless if you flip the attorney teams, both attorneys kind of said, hey, I, we would file this regardless. You know, Washington obviously wants this thrown out. I was a little surprised, Wilner, to see the brief with the nine schools that are out of state signing it because they've largely not really participated in this and this is the first time that they kind of had a voice in it what did you make of the brief that the nine schools kind of said hey we agree this should be thrown out yeah well i mean i was kind of figuring that they're all in it together and just the legal nature kind of they're claiming that the whitman county washington court doesn't have jurisdiction over them so that's why washington kind of acted alone in in filing the motion uh, to intervene, but you know that, that I've always viewed all ten as a group, and the two as a group. So to me, it, it makes sense. I mean, they all released a statement together saying that they didn't violate the bylaws, right? But the, from the, just from the the narrow legal issue with with the jurisdiction, they kind of have to. I guess they feel like they wanted to separate and claim. Uh, sovereign immunity, essentially. Yeah, and uh, separating and claiming sovereign immunity and, oh, by the way, a couple of hearings on the horizon, October 25th now and then November 14th if it moves forward. I want discovery. Are you are you down for discovery? I am down for that, that absolutely. I mean, it, it could lead to... Now, I don't know exactly how much... Uh, how many of the documents are going to ever be made public and what the redactions are going to be like. But certainly uh, it will be interesting to see what comes out of this whole thing, right? Because Washington, I think Washington State and Oregon State, they, they want to know, you know, who the other 10 schools were talking to, when they were talking to them, how detailed those conversations were in terms of the other conferences. I mean, were some of those schools saying we're all in with the Pac-12 while they're having these ongoing discussions with other leagues, I think that that would certainly be very interesting for 
for the case, right? I mean, my guess is that's a lot of what Washington State and Oregon State are after. Yeah, John Wilner with us, Bay Area News Group. The the jurisdiction of this case uh, in obviously the filings today and the questions about you know sovereign immunity all, all going on while the schools also announced and you reported this this morning that they have engaged in or will engage in some mediation do you see mediation as a real possibility to solve things or is this just mediation because that's what you do when you're also in a lawsuit to show good faith boy great question uh the mediation began on october 2nd uh according to the court documents and is expected to go for the rest of the month i, I think it's a little early uh for for mediation in the process but i could see that they get to late october even early november and that hearing on the preliminary injunction is, is looming and they just want to get this whole thing settled. I don't Wilner, I don't know that we'll see a, you know a resolution on the mediation in the next couple of weeks, but maybe as we get get closer, we'll see. It certainly is mediation is certainly something that happens a lot in in cases like this, but that certainly doesn't mean they're going to get it settled. What's George Klyovkov's role in this anymore? And I saw, you know, he's not going to be speaking at the basketball media days. He's really got nothing to say there. What's his role in all of this anymore? I mean, he. I think he's just kind of helping to run the conference on a day-to-day basis, but he's, I mean, he's doesn't have much of a role in any of the things that really matter, right? Uh, whether it's the legal issues or the schools leaving or Washington State and Oregon State trying to reform the conference, all the big picture stuff he's out of. I mean, in some ways he's just kind of a puppet head, right? Uh, But they do need, I mean, they've got, you know, 850 live events they got to produce this year. They've got all these sports competitions, uh, seasons until May. The conference needs to have somebody in charge. Now, they could just, you know, uh, cut him loose and name an interim commissioner. The thing is, they probably got to pay him anyhow. And so, why, you know, why not just keep him on to run the run the day to day? I mean, the conference needs somebody to represent it at various meetings and college football playoff stuff. So he's he's doing that, but man, he's got no he's got no teeth, right? I mean, he's walking around gumming everything to death. <laughs> John Wilner with us. Uh, Wilner, coming everything to death. I love that. Uh, Wilner, let, I mean, let's really, pi- he's just a, he's kind of a figurehead. Yeah. Let, let's pivot to the football itself. Uh, you know, we watched we watched a great weekend of football again. The stage is set for Oregon, Washington. UCLA, Oregon State's not bad. USC still undefeated, even though they've looked about as bad as an undefeated team can look at times. You know, how good is this football in your eyes, and where is it headed? Are we about to see the cannibalization begin, or do you think we'll have contenders emerge here in the next two weeks? I mean, we've already seen a little cannibalization, right, with, with UCLA beating Washington State uh, and Oregon State beating Utah. What was that, two weeks ago? 
it's inevitable. And, and part of the reason it's inevitable is because the schedule, because basically Utah, USC, Oregon, Washington, Washington State, they're all, Oregon State, they're all playing each other for the most part. Uh, whereas, you know, last year USC didn't play Oregon or Washington, right? I mean, imagine if we had that set up this year. So uh, I think that it's inevitable. The question is going to be, is anybody going to lose twice? Uh, because I think if you lose twice, you're out of the playoff hunt. As good as the conference is, uh, I just think that that's, that's too far to fall behind. So can, can somebody get through the regular season and the conference championship game with, with one loss? I don't think anybody's going undefeated. But, man, that, that second loss is going to be killer. And there's so many good teams that are playing each other. You could see how, if you include the conference championship, nobody can get out of the Pac-12 with, with one, one loss. It's going to be tough. John Wilner with us, San Jose Mercury News. Chip Kelly in UCLA, you know, every time I forget about him, they, they rise back up and post a win that says, hey, don't forget about us. I feel like it was that kind of moment on Saturday against – uh, against Cam Ward in Washington State. Another big one for Chip Kelly as they go to Reeser Stadium, tough place to win, but that that does feel like an elimination game under your format. It does. Yeah, it is, for sure. And, and it'll be real interesting because the Bruins are kind of the opposite of what they've been. They, you know, last year they were, at the average, like 40 a game, and they gave up like 39 a game. Uh, this year their defense looks like it's pretty legit, but their offense isn't very good. Uh, so it's going to be, I think it's going to be a fascinating game. I mean, certainly Oregon-Washington is getting all the attention, and, and justifiably so. But, I mean, I think UCLA-Oregon State is going to be fascinating, too. And it's going to be an old-school game, right? a real contrast to what's going on in Seattle. Because you know Oregon State wants to run the ball 30-plus times a game. And UCLA is going to try to run the ball and play good defense. So you could have a game in Seattle that's 50-45 and a game in Corvallis that is, you know, 21-17. It'll be a fascinating contrast. Wilner, the, pivoting to the game in Seattle, what is that outcome about in your mind? Like, you and I will give our official picks on our podcast later this week, but what, you know, in your mind, what is that game about? What are the factors involved? Where is your head, you know, with, uh, on a Monday of game week? I'm just thinking about how many fights there will be in the stands. You know, <laughs> I mean, because you figure as much hatred as there is, and then you add on the stakes, right? This is the first time they've ever played with both teams were in the top ten. They both have Heisman Trophy candidates. They both are thinking about the playoffs. I mean, it's it's fantastic. Game day is going to be there. I, I just think the the stands are going to be the play the place to be before the game that is going to be awesome uh to me it's all about the line of scrimmage and is washington going to be able to stop oregon's running game and is oregon going to be able to pressure michael Penix and disrupt washington's passing game right to which defense is going to play better uh because if if you don't play good defense uh, you know the other team's going to get get 40 plus so to me, that's what it all comes down to. I think Oregon, to this point, is a little bit more of a complete team than the Huskies are. I think Oregon's better defensively and has more balance on offense. But certainly that doesn't mean the Ducks are going to win. 
uh, I mean, I thought that last year too when Washington went into Austin and won the game. Yeah, I, I keep thinking about, you know, we, we always talk about those signature games that, that teams will put in. And Michael Penix Jr., Bo Nix, both guys that are bantered about uh, in this Heisman race, I almost think it's almost like a Heisman elimination as well. If one of these guys just flat out plays the other, can, you know, do we eliminate Bo Nix or do we eliminate Michael Penix Jr.? If Oregon, if Bo Nix just has a huge day, throws six touchdown passes and outshines Penix, it's it's that kind of stage, that kind of game. It, it feels like that, you know, the, as games go, this is the biggest game I can remember in several years, even though last year's game was big. This is the biggest Washington-Oregon game with the highest stakes that I can that I can think about. Oh, it's, it's uh, yeah, I think it's pretty close to unprecedented. Uh, certainly they have met before when both were ranked, but neither when both were in the top ten. Uh, I, I don't know about the Heisman thing. You know, certainly if one guy plays poorly, yes. But if it's a case where one guy is fantastic and the other guy is good, uh, I don't know that it's an elimination game. Uh, because you, there's still going to be so many more chances, right? They're both going to be going against USC in November and Caleb Williams, and he's the Heisman frontrunner. So, I mean, let's just say Nick's, Nick's plays well, but Penix is better and Oregon loses by 10 points. That doesn't mean Nick's is out of it. If he turns around and has a great stretch run and, and outplays Caleb Williams, then he's going to be right back in it. And the other pieces, the Huskies and Ducks, could meet again in Las Vegas, and that game would have obviously enormous stakes. So uh, I think that uh, there's so much to play out. The Pac-12 has got 12 games, 12 conference games in the final half of the season with ranked teams that against ranked teams, and uh, there's just so much to play out. That it's great that the Oregon-Washington game is in the middle of October, and certainly great they both got a, a week off to get ready and get, get fresh. But I don't know that we can assign too much significance to it because they both have such challenging schedules down the stretch run and so much can happen. When you look at Utah's season, it's been disappointing, hasn't gone as they thought, Cam Rising just hasn't been healthy. We get the news last week that Rising's injury was not just an ACL tear. It was a full con- reconstruction of the knee with an MCL, an ACL, and torn meniscus. A lot more involved. Did Utah misplay that in your mind? I think you could make that case. I mean, I they he had he tore something I'd never even heard of. I mean, I, I got the image <laughs> like his, his lower leg was dangling. Basically, the skin was the only thing holding his lower leg. Uh, together, right? I mean, it sounded just horrific. And so it made me think, well, it was that bad. Why was there even uh, any kind of speculation that he might be ready for the Florida game? There's no way that was going to happen. So, but it's complicated because you're dealing with student privacy issues, right? So ultimately, if he doesn't want to say anything about the severity of the injury for whatever reason, Utah is very limited. But I would say, knowing what we know now, that in an ideal world, Utah would have been more, with Rising's approval, Utah would have been a little bit more proactive, and they would have said sometime in early August, he's not ready for the first few games. It, it, the knee injury was just too severe. Uh, and I think that that would have, that would have helped 
you know, certainly the narrative, and it just might have helped the whole vibe around the program, provided clarity, because there was no way he was going to play against Florida, knowing what we know now. Uh, yes, they wanted to keep opponents guessing, but to, at some point you just got to say, you know what, uh, it's, it's not happening. Everybody needs to just be patient, and we'll see what happens. John Wilner with us. USC Notre Dame is happening this weekend, and you talk about being under under the radar. The Oregon Washington game's got my attention. Oregon State UCLA's got my attention. You know, you've got um, ABC and Fox broadcasting the two games that'll be held in Seattle and in Corvallis. But on NBC, we're going to see USC and Notre Dame at 4:30. How big a game is this for USC? Is it big for the conference in your mind? What are the stakes? Well, I would say that it was going to be big until Notre Dame lost to Louisville, right? Because Notre Dame always stands as a an obstacle for the Pac-12 getting the team in the playoff. Because anytime Notre Dame's going to be 12 and 0 or 11 and 1, they're kind of in in the playoff line ahead of the Pac-12 champ. But once Notre Dame got that second loss, they are no longer a threat to keep the Pac-12 champ out of the playoff. So. To me, the game doesn't have nearly as much significance for the for the conference as a whole because the Irish have two losses. But it's a huge game for USC because USC, you know, if they lose in South Bend, they have to run the table through the Pac-12. They got to be Utah, Washington, Oregon, UCLA, then win the Pac-12 championship game. Uh, they can't afford to lose they, in this game because. Then they have no margin for error in conference play if they want to get into the playoffs. So, gigantic game for the Trojans. Real, It'll be real interesting, too, because their defense has been so terrible. Uh, and Notre Dame actually has the threat of a passing game this year, which it hasn't. It didn't really have last year. So, uh, I'm curious to see how SC reacts. And then SC, they go to South Bend. Then they got to turn around, and they're going to, uh, they're going to Salt Lake City the next week. Really tough back-to-back for the Trojans. John Wilner with us. This season is obviously heading to Vegas. We talked at the beginning of the year and talked about who you thought and who I thought would get to Las Vegas. Who right now, prior to this Oregon-Washington game being played, in your mind, do you have sort of penciled in to play each other in Vegas? Right now, I think there's going to be a rematch. I think they're the two best teams. I have not seen SC's defense just very flawed. Uh, and my question about Oregon State and Washington State, Utah also big problems, right, because of the Cam Rising situation. So Oregon State Washington State, I am not sold on either of them on the road. I have not, you know, Oregon State went to Cal, yes, they won, but they gave up 42 points. They went to Pullman, they gave up 30 38 points. Washington State went to UCLA, couldn't get it going. You know, you got to be able to win on the road. I haven't seen enough of either of those teams winning on the road uh, and playing at a high level on the road on both sides of the ball to think that they're going to get through and get to Vegas. So to me right now, if you're asking, I say Oregon-Washington rematch in Vegas, and I'm, I'm all for that. That'd be awesome. I think it would be, uh, it would be fantastic. I also think you know, you never know what's going to happen. Pac-12 after dark, all these teams playing each other. There's some teams like UCLA, Oregon State, Utah that can win on any given day. 
in the background, yeah. Colorado, Colorado losing some sizzle, but a couple things. Uh, Shador Sanders raising the watch to the ASU student section. Bad form or, or okay for a college kid? I think bad form. He, he's, he has a lot of bad forms, right? I, I have not been uh, – he, he's a terrific player, but I am uh, not a fan of ha- his actions. I, I think he needs to get a little bit more mature. Uh, that's my that's my view of of it. This certainly isn't that wasn't the first time where he's done something on the field that I thought you know what you need to you need to act your age a little bit. How about the Colorado story in general? They are now sitting within arm's reach, basically, of a bowl possibility of a bowl game. They've got games with Stanford and Arizona uh, on the horizon. It, it feels like if they play well down the stretch here they're gonna they're gonna have a legit shot to get to six do you see them at six wins i do well i do and i think that we'll know a lot more uh friday night because they host stanford if they lose to stanford then it's going to get a little bit tricky uh but if they beat stanford they're five and two and and you know they've got five games left to win to win one uh they are they are much better than they were, but they're still not that good. I mean, they just struggled to beat ASU. ASU's terrible, right? They struggled to beat Colorado State. Colorado State just lost to Utah State by 20. Uh, so it's, you know, college football fans don't like nuance, but Colorado is is nuanced. They are much better, but still not that good. And so they're kind of in that gray area a little bit which is fine. That's what it's supposed to be in the first year of a rebuilding process with a new head coach, right? And if they get to six wins, it's a, it's a huge success for them. It's just that the way the season started, I think, you know, raised expectations beyond what was reasonable given their personnel. Their defense isn't very good. Their offensive line is terrible. And uh, they are going to take on, uh, you know, they're going to lose several more times but I do think that they, they have a great chance to get to 6-6. Six and six. Uh, And if they beat Stanford, they're, they're basically a lock for the, for the Bulls, I think. Mario Cristobal is a little outside the Pac-12, but i got to know what you thought when you saw Miami running the football and Cristobal looking sick to himself uh, on the sideline. He did the same thing at the Stanford game in... Uh, 2018. 2018. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, where they lost in overtime, right? Yeah, it was, essentially, was essentially the, the same loss? thing. Yeah, fifty nine. In that yeah. one, there was fifty nine seconds left. Stanford had one timeout. It's second down. They're near midfield. He could have just taken a knee, taken a knee, and punted. And in and there's some argument whether he would have had to punt or not because there would only been about five or eight seconds if the if the officials had wound it exactly right. Or, you know, maybe you just you just take a knee and you do that thing where the quarterback kind of waits, 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 and then takes a knee. But it um, he was defiant in that game. He said, oh, we have to be able to run the ball. We have to be able to hand it off. We should not be fumbling it. And in this one, I think it's a little worse because, you know, Georgia Tech had no timeouts. Like, they can't stop the clock. You just kneel and it's over. Yeah, bad, bad. Uh, not fireable on the spot bad but kind of close. I mean, just terrible. And he didn't, you know, he obviously didn't learn from before. And you gotta, you gotta learn as a head coach. So uh, if you had said to me 
uh, if you had laid out the situation without telling me the head coach or the team, but just said, this is what happened, I would have said, oh, Mario at work again. Yeah. Yeah, it's just uh, it's stubborn, and hopefully he learns from it. But you're right, I don't think it's fireable, but I think it's one of those beginning of the end. If if the narrative, you know, if he ends up getting fired, part of that story goes back to last Saturday, and you know, they, people say, well, that was the beginning of it, or that was a big pivot point yeah. in that in that discussion. Uh, all right, uh, it can become a, it can become a bad narrative very quickly for him. Yeah, Wilner, well, great job covering this conference. I'll catch up with you. I appreciate uh, you joining us on short notice and uh, talking about what you know. So thanks, man. Thanks as always, my friend. I'll see you. There he goes, John Wilner. Pac-12, a lot of drama and a lot of good football, too. Leave it here. Anna has popped into the studio. I have to say, she doesn't know this. I'm about to break some news in our household. She doesn't know this, but um, they're, uh, you remember the saga of the uh, candy? Do you remember the ongoing saga of the Halloween candy? <laughs> I don't know about yeah. ongoing. I it's recall, ongoing for me. I recall a one-day incident in which large amounts of Halloween candy were purchased and hidden from the majority of the members of the household to preserve their existence until Halloween. And certain members of the family were very upset and searching for the Halloween candy like Gollum searching for the ring. That's so mean. <laughs> That's just mean. You know? But not untrue. Go on. It, but just name names, okay? <laughs> you bought candy at Costco. You got scammed at Costco. They sent you. They sold you two giant industrial-sized bags of miniature <laughs> candies. And there, it includes Milky Way and Twix and Reese's yeah, and Hundred Grand and two stuff. forms of peanuts yeah. and uh, Kit Kat. And I know this because I sorted through it looking for the Snicker bars and yeah. the Mil- Milky Way and the Twix yeah. in general. We interrupt this podcast with a special announcement from the Bald Hey, sorry to interrupt the podcast, but... If you want to listen to more of the Bald Face Truth Radio Show, including more of this segment that you're listening to, make sure you subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes to the Bald Face Truth Radio Show. Thanks for listening.